Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 87, and it's early 1987, coincidentally. The SADF is now facing a crisis as the MPLA government in Angola was growing increasingly determined to crush UNITA in the southeast. The apartheid government was also facing an internal uprising, and new organizations had been developed to deal with these. One was the Civil Cooperation Bureau, or CCB. You'll hear a lot more about them in the coming few episodes. But in this episode, we'll hear about Colonel Piet Muller, who commanded Sector 2-0 in Southwest Africa. He had considered the threat posed by Farpla, which was now attacking UNITA head-on at Mavinga, and the Angolan rebel movement led by Jonas Sabimbi was wilting. Muller had a plan involving a brigade-sized force and a three-pronged attack. First, he thought that Papla should be hit behind the line, so to speak, by ignoring their advance east of the Quito River and focus on the west, hitting the Cubans and Russian support at Menong. That would halt the supply of heavy weapons streaming east. This implied something else. Quito Guanavali needed to be attacked and subdued even further northwest because it was the fulcrum, a point through which everything heading towards Unita was now moving. It was a strategic target that was also juicy. And third... It was to create some kind of direct head-on clash further east of the Quito River at some point after the supply lines had been cut, which would give the Angolans a bloody nose and they'd turn around. Colonel Jock Harris, who commanded 3-2 Battalion, thought this an excellent idea. It conformed to SADF tactical doctrine using mechanized brigades, punching first, using the troops directly to take on the Cubans and Fapla driving their armored vehicles and tanks towards UNITA forces. Of course, we are moving inexorably towards the battle for Quito Quanavali, and this period has been debated particularly hotly by military historians, so I'm going to tread very carefully indeed. I've also some excellent source material from the Russians, so unlike some of the other battles, I'll be able to tell you what was going on day to day from the other side. One of the Russians is Vyacheslav Alexandrovich Mityev, who was in Angola between 1986 and 1989 advising FAPLA reconnaissance units. He was stationed in the 6th Military District at Menong and Quito Quanavali and had a great deal of experience facing 3-2 Battalion, the Rekis and 61 Mech. He's an interesting character. He served with the Soviets in Afghanistan in 1979 and 1980 and arrived in Angola in March 1986. Mityev was moved into one of the most violent parts of Angola, Menong. His home was a large dugout two meters deep with concrete walls and a sloping roof. He led a recon group. These men were tough and slept on the floor on cardboard, like the homeless, as he says, with their AK-47s as pillows. The Papa Special Forces used American M26 grenades, not Soviet F-1s. Mityev trained these men in the art of ambush, how to carry out raids, how to move in the bush, sneaking up on soldiers in the dark, how to kill guards, and how to transport prisoners. They had night vision sights for AKs and the machine guns, but one per squad. These were Russian-made and tended to break down in the humidity, the heat and the dust. However, the fact they used them at all would have been used to summon the SADF side. One day in 1987, Mitya formed up the men from his recon unit and ordered them, Show me the weapon! When did you clean it? The answer from one Fapla soldier surprised him. We never clean them! They shoot fine as they are, came the reply. Anyone who knows AK-47s knows they're almost unbreakable. These troops didn't even oil or grease the moving parts either. Of course, military sticklers would scoff at their lackadaisical approach to discipline, but the truth is these AKs hardly jam, unlike most other weapons used in the African bush. 
Mitiev also discovered a large quantity of the food they were supplied with included tinned meat from humanitarian aid groups. These were supposed to be earmarked for refugees, but ended up being eaten by the soldiers. After a few months of training, there were signs in May 1987 that something much bigger was coming up. The preparations for the operation from Quito began with a reconnaissance battalion transferred from Manong to Quito, Guanavali. Mitiev joined other countrymen seconded to the area, and life was idyllic at first. They were surrounded by missile systems, and the SAF was left them alone. The town of Quito, Guanavali is at the junction of the Quito and Guanavali rivers, and was a conglomeration of small holdings or fazendas that were peri-urban, not agricultural. They were all decorated by the Portuguese, and Quito was full of small cottages. These were now run down, and the sewage systems had collapsed. The centre of town is on a rise near the river junction, and was a colourful place before it was to be bombed into ruin. The river water at this junction is clear, described as almost like distilled water. Fishing is very good. The Russians caught a huge number of fish using worms for bait, including the aggressive tigerfish with teeth like a saw. They swam in this clear water when they could, keeping an eagle eye out for the crocodiles, which lurked in the murky water inside the smaller tributaries. What was far more deadly was the South African artillery and air force, and that was to take place in a short while. While the Russians and Cubans prepared their assault on Mavinga from this quiet little town, the SADF had plans. They were monitoring the Fapla force of eight brigades, which looked like it was going to hammer Mavinga and possibly head to Jamba, Unita's HQ. Four Fapla brigades were left in the rear to safeguard logistic routes. The other four were going to attack Unita head-on. Each brigade conformed to Soviet design. They comprised of around 1,500 men, so that the total number of Fapla soldiers was around 12,000. They were backed by tanks, artillery, air support, fighter bombers and numerous armoured vehicles. All of these had to be supplied, and that's where the first challenge rose for the Angolans. UNITA, with SADF assistance, were determined to stop logistic support, particularly the fuel supply. Between May and June 1987, a large column of tankers arrived in Manong with the Angolan 5th Brigade as escorts. There were apparently 23 semi-trailer tankers, 18 filled with diesel, and 5 with petrol. But on the way south, they were hit by UNITA specialists armed with RPG-7s, who deployed hit-and-run tactics. UNITA ambushed the brigade supporting the tankers on the road between Longo and Quito Guanavali, about 100 kilometres from Menong. The routine used by FAPLA was a brigade strength led the march, walking on both sides of the road. The reconnaissance units supporting FAPLA joined the brigade about halfway between Menong and Longo. The troops were now walking slowly through open savannah. The surrounding felt should have been combed more easily by patrols, but in this case, the Angolan officers missed the bus, as Mitiev writes. What Unita was doing was monitoring this brigade, and they had melted away into the savannah, waiting for the forward troops to pass before they attacked. They had also planted several landmines, which then exploded, stopping the column, and at that moment, the Unita troops armed with RPG anti-tank grenade launchers stepped out and hit the tankers. Because Unita uniforms are similar to Fapla's camouflage, it created confusion, and of course they all carried AKs and RPK machine guns, and RPG-7s. At least 10 fuel tankers were hit and burned out. Mitiev says Unita's technique was to fire a single shot from an RPG, then escape with others laying down covering fire. Mitiev was now in Menong when he heard about this attack and immediately climbed aboard a Cuban MI-8 helicopter to fly towards the ambush at low altitude, around 200 feet above ground level. And as they passed Longo, 
they saw the columns of black smoke. There was gunfire on the ground. The convoy was halted. There was a firefight still going on with UNITA. Mitchell then told the Cuban pilot to climb above the smoke for better visibility. He refused, saying there'd be a target for UNITA's anti-aircraft gunners. After flying around in this thick smoke, they returned to base, frustrated by what the Russians said was the Cuban lack of nerve. The Russians complained about FAPLA too. The Angolans hear gunfire and run, said Mityev. They aren't really brave soldiers. The Angolans were terrified of the South Africans. This is one of the truths of the border war. In some theatres, Swapo and FAPLA fought hard, but generally regarded the SADF as a terrifying organisation and highly effective, and the rank-and-file Angolan soldier often preferred to avoid a face-to-face firefight. Perhaps this dry season would be different. The MPLA, Russians and Cubans launched a new offensive in 1987 they called Operation Saludando a October, Saluting October, and it set off in mid-August from Quito, Guanabari. Most FAPLA were on foot with BTR-60 PB armoured personnel carriers and small Brazilian Engesa trucks with supplies of food, ammunition and fuel lagging behind. The force of eight brigades included a total of 150 T-55 tanks and apart from a list of armoured vehicles such as the BMP-1s, BTR-60s and the BRDMs, the Angolans sent in D-30 and M-46 cannon, 120mm rocket launchers, the feared BM-21s, as well as SAM-6, 7 and 8 service-to-air missiles. It was the biggest offensive up to that point by FAPLA and their Russian and Cuban allies in this war. The big change I mentioned last episode was in the air war. The Angolans finally had air superiority in the shape of MiG-23s and Su-22 fighters, which were more than a match for the Mirages. The Mi-24 combat helicopters called the Hind, and known by Soviet pilots as the Flying Tank, were also going to be a real threat to the SADF. At the same time, the SA Air Force was hamstrung by the sheer distance to Mavinga from Ashikati and Ondangwa, coupled with the limited radar coverage from Rundu. UNITA began to send messages to the SADF asking for more assistance, and eventually the Defence Force agreed to send a limited force to help UNITA defend against the initial Mavinga attacks. It was now that Colonel Muller's battle plan was hauled out and dusted off. Army Chief Lieutenant General Kat Liebenberg was lukewarm at best about the first two options, to take Menong with a strong force or take Quito Guanavali from the west. This is where I'm afraid some of the confused logic around strategy starts to take place. While the Menong attack would stop FAPLA, it would also mean the mobilization of a massive SADF force. And at this point, the South Africans were running into financial difficulties. Years of instability and sanctions were starting to have a real effect on its economy. Also, they believed that attacking these two heavily defended towns would lead to a huge butcher's bill, as Jan Breitenbach called it. South Africa's white male population, the national servicemen who provided their lives in this war, were growing tired of the incessant call-ups, and the National Party Cabinet was aware of what a high casualty rate would mean to their political future. Putting hundreds in line of being killed for the sake of stopping a FAPLA assault on UNITA is not an astute policy. So Muller's first two options were discarded in favour of the direct head-on attack against FAPLA in the area east of Quito. A sudden blunt force blow they thought would do the trick. Yet, as the officers on the ground in Angola knew, this was a completely inaccurate reading of the threat proceeding towards them. Back in Pretoria, the political leadership was in a complex situation. 
The SADF was told in no uncertain terms that the battle should not escalate beyond the capacity of the Southwest African Territorial Force or the SADF to deal with the situation. More importantly, P.W. Boerter and his cabinet made it crystal clear that the central idea was to make FAPLA's offensive fail without committing South Africa totally. This is where the first strategic blunder can be identified. It's easy enough to pontificate now, you say. Hindsight is always twenty twenty. Except, at the time, voices inside the SADF were raised about this half-hearted mission. How can you fight a war while pussyfooting around? It was full frontal, they thought. Go big or go home. To drip-feed soldiers into a mechanized war makes no sense. People like Vladimir Putin are learning that lesson right now. Furthermore, should the SADF attack Quito Kwanabali directly, Boerter's government believed the international outcry would be significant and lead to more disinvestment from South Africa. Then the obvious question arose that if the SADF did indeed overcome the Russians, Cubans and FAPLA at Quito Kwanabali, what would happen next? UNITA couldn't hold the town against a sustained FAPLA attack, and worse, the South Africans would then be pulled further north of the cutline to set up their own battalions much deeper inside Angola. Holding an Angolan town would be politically disastrous, but taking it, then withdrawing, would be a waste of life, and the Angolans would make propaganda capital out of the tactical retreat. It would be like grabbing a tiger by the tail. So it was the full frontal but limited assault called Operation Modular that won out the military debate and would turn into what Leopold Skoltz calls the Clash of the Titans. Heavy metal was going to clang and clash during the next few months around the Lomba River. The South Africans' main strategy was to convince Luanda's MPLA government that they should negotiate with UNITA by being defeated despite attacking in numbers. The elephant was Quito Kwanavali. Pretoria was in a real bind. Taking Quito would have escalated the war, and by now they were fighting an internal uprising back home in South Africa, and it appears the political leadership in Pretoria stopped thinking straight. The only hope was FAPLA's clumsy Soviet doctrine-influenced tactical movement. This entails using a centralized command and control system and supplies delivered almost exclusively along a road in one direction. The only proper road in this part of Angola was the old Portuguese road from Menong through Longo to Quito Guanavali, across the Quito River and towards Mavinga. All command lines, ground, logistics, artillery, reconnaissance, air passed through Quito. The SADF was going to focus on this road and also to try and damage the chain of command. The next phase of South Africa's border war was going to be cursed by Jan Breitenbach, called it fatally flawed and incremental in nature. There were other plans. One was to send 3-2 Battalion and the Rekis to destroy the bridge over the Quito River between Quito, Guanavali and Tumpo in a night assault and without air cover. Jan Breitenbach now warned what he called the Butcher's Bull would top 300 and casualties would not be evacuated because there would be no helicopter support. So the SADF wisely shelved the plan. By now the total number of Cubans in Angola had risen to 45,000, and there were 2,000 East Germans who ran FAPLA's signal communications and intelligence ops. This included electronic warfare systems. Cuban President Fidel Castro regarded the Angolan war as a personal mission and sent General Gustavo Fletas Ramirez to lead the 45,000 men he'd ordered into the Angolan bush. Then P.W. Boerter ordered Operation Modular to go ahead, and Phase 1 would see UNITA supported by clandestine Special Forces soldiers, anti-tank teams, along with a Valkyrie MRL troop and three motorized infantry companies of 3-2 Battalion. But 
they left behind the Rattle 90 anti-tank platoon. This force was going to be a delaying tactic, slowing Fapla down. 61 mech battalions supported by two G5 batteries, another MRL trooper were then told to await further orders. They were the reinforcements. As the SADF planners put their heads down, they were confronted by politically expedient orders. First, no South African soldier should be sent to where they would be taken prisoner. Second, no SADF equipment should be seized by the enemy. Third, when the SAF force flew in, they should keep further than 30 kilometers from Quito, Guanabali. Fourth, that the SADF should try and make out that UNITA was doing all this fighting. What is really interesting is reading the Russian diaries of Moscow's men fighting in southern Angola, who are very clear that the South Africans are doing most of the fighting. How Pretoria somehow thought they could convince outsiders they weren't is just preposterous. Then the South African recce and special forces team was dropped 70 kilometers upstream of the strategically important Quito River Bridge on the night of 25th of August. They paddled down to a position close to the bridge and hid their canoes. The men swam with the current bobbing to the bridge pylons where they placed explosives. Around half a dozen then floated away safe, but guards on the bridge spotted the special force and opened fire. The South Africans were exposed but used the river to float away until Sergeant Anton Bjorkman was attacked by a large crocodile and dragged underwater. He pulled out his knife and stabbed the huge animal in the eye. It let him go, and he got away. Another wreck, he had his flippers bitten, but all managed to stagger out of the water alive. But now, enemy soldiers were in hot pursuit. The commanders managed to evade capture on a fast 20-kilometer trot through the bush to the helicopter pickup point. They were carrying two wounded, so this was an epic trick. Then, in a bizarre turn of events, a completely unseasonal thunderstorm burst overhead. The choppers could not deal with this. Four Pumas were on their way to fetch the commanders on the evening of 26th of August 1987, flying at 150 feet above ground level. Then they hit the headwinds from the thunderstorms and dropped from 120 knots ground speed to 45. They began running out of fuel, so they had to turn back to Rundu. They refueled as quickly as possible, but it was already growing light, and the Pumas had to operate only at night, because the MiGs were all over the place. They had to wait for dark and then the Pumas headed back to the pickup point, but one of the helicopters developed engine trouble and turned back to Rundu, leaving the three others to head on. The delay of almost 24 hours meant that Fapla units were closing in on the Rekis. The Angolans had also mobilized their MI-8 and MI-24 helicopters and managed to keep an eye on where the Rekis were and provide updated info to the pursuing Angolan troops. And of course they found it difficult to provide a proper grid reference in these days before GPS, They'd been running through the bush for almost 24 hours and had actually lost track of where they were. So the Puma pilots picked up the Quito River, then flew north parallel to it and a few kilometers east of the river itself. Just as the choppers were at the turn back point, they heard the recce's radio call and simultaneously the commandos heard the choppers and activated what's known as an instant light. The Puma crew spotted the lights and then homed in. The Rekis then fired a pencil flare sideways through the trees to indicate the landing area. They couldn't fire this up because Fapla pursuers would have seen it. The lead Puma loaded 16 men and one wounded, but some equipment was then thrown out so that the chopper could actually take off. The second Puma also airlifted 16, and the third Puma took 21 soldiers, using an extended ground roll to take off like a plane. Twelve members of this op were awarded the honorous crooks. But they'd put themselves in danger for little reward. The Angolans had already moved most of their supplies across the river bridge they'd blown up 
and then managed to fix the bridge in record time as only 40% of the structure was damaged. General Khelnes now issued a formal order that Fapla's assault on Mavinga should be halted. 3-2 Battalion and the Rekis were back in business, with 61 mech in reserve, as you've heard. Unita was going to lead the coming battles, at least that was Pretoria's order. 3-2 would be used defensively. Furthermore, 61 mech was not allowed to mobilise without top brass permission. This was going to be a limited small-scale defensive holding operation, and the world would never know. At least, that was the mission's statement. Their involvement should be plausibly deniable, said Pretoria. 3-2's commander Jock Harris knew this was a fool's errand and asked for Ulifan tanks to back up his men. He knew what awaited them in southern Angola. Puerta's cabinet said no, so Harris sent his troops to the southern banks of the Lomba River, where they arrived by mid-August. Unita placed three regular and four semi-regular battalions close by. Meanwhile, Fapla had commenced an extremely slow advance southeast towards them, moving at four kilometres a day, and Unita sniping at the heels as they moved. As the order of battle appeared, there continued to be debate between senior officers about the reinforcements, particularly 61 Mech. Eventually, Kat Liebenbach flew to Rundu and was briefed by Muller, then consented to deploying 61 Mech to the front under command of Commandant Bot Smith. But they still did not mobilise the SADF's other heavy mechanised unit, Forsai. Their home base was in Middleburg in the eastern Transvaal. They had been ready for action since March 1987, but would only be moved into Angola in October. So Colonel Jock Harris had sent Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta and Foxtrot companies of 3-2 Battalion to be led by Commandant Jan Hochart, along with multiple rocket launchers, an Eisterfark anti-aircraft troop, three recce teams from 3-2 Battalion and a second Eisterfark troop and 120mm mortar battery from 61 Mech to slow Fapla's advance. A little later, another mortar section from 3-2 joined up, along with an anti-tank and an assault pioneer platoon. But Fapla was not stopping. By late August, Fapla's formidable 47th and 21st Brigades, accompanied by a tactical armoured group equipped with tanks, had pushed as far as 25 kilometres from Mavinga. The South Africans were determined to stop Fapla from crossing the Lomba River, and Harris initially set up his HQ close to the source of the Lomba. The rest of the battle group were arranged southeast of Mavinga. The SAF Force right now was flying UAVs, or drones, picking up the fact that Fapla's brigades were now spread over vast distances, around 8 kilometres square each, which made air and artillery attack an expensive enterprise. It was only as the right hook brigades appeared and rounded the source of the Lomba River that any real attack from the air became viable. And now Fapla's 21 brigade positioned itself north of the Lomba River, while 47 brigades circled around its southern bank. Because the landscape here is particularly wide and flat, broad floodplains extend for miles on either side of the river, it's difficult to move vehicles without being spotted. It also meant that these two enemy brigades were separated from each other, while at the same time they began to compress into two distinct targets up against the Lomba River. The SA Air Force and artillery was going to cause carnage attacking these two brigades, using airburst and fragmentation munitions filled with thousands of ball bearings. One stick of eight bombs covered a strip of 70 metres wide and 400 metres long. And our Russian source will explain what happened to his colleagues in one of these bombing raids. It was not a pretty picture. But that's for next episode.
Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps raise the visibility of the series. If you want to contact me, you can head off to abwarpodcast.com. There's a contact form on the homepage. Or direct message me if you're in a rush on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, Bus Pate. Thank you.